Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is our colleague Emily Eakins, a research fellow and director of polling at the Cato Institute. And interestingly, or perhaps not, we were Cato interns together in the summer of 2010. Also, her past Free Thoughts episode, Who Elected Donald Trump, is our most popular episode ever by a pretty substantial margin. I don't know if you knew that, Emily, but yeah, it's it's really oh, popular. So, so welcome, <laughs> welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So before we get to results from your polling, which we'll talk about a, a few things today, I'd like to start with a broader question about your approach to polling. Uh, what is your approach and what makes it a little different than what a lot of people and organizations do? Well, you know, there's a different there's different ways that people go about polling. You know, some polls come from news organizations like the Wall Street Journal or ABC News or the Washington Post. Um, and those polls are intended to really speak to the times, you know, what is salient in the news right now and what would make for an interesting headline. Um, other types of polls are more academic in nature and they try to kind of dig deep to try to get at what are those underlying assumptions and values and beliefs that people have that motivate them or may motivate them to vote a certain way or to support a various policy. Um, and that's usually been done by researchers like at the Pew Research Center or academics that study political science, economic, social, you know, social sciences of some kind. Um, and so we actually kind of merge the two approaches in the research that we do um, at Cato, where we are interested in, um, you know, what's salient, but we want to dig deeper and get to those underlying values and assumptions that people have. Um, but there's one other thing that we also do that surprises me that other pollsters don't do more of, to be honest. Um, we ask about trade-offs, um, and that's something that you just don't see a lot of in polling. Um, a lot of times people will ask, you know, do you favor or oppose this policy and don't give any indication to what the opportunity costs or the actual costs would be. Um, and so that's something that we try to implement in our polling. Um, and I mean, I'm happy to talk about some of that today. Yeah, that I'm very big fan of that fact because it's been a frustrating aspect for me of polling that you have, say, in gun control, you have constantly they roll out this thing that say 84% of people support common sense gun restrictions or something like that. And it's, and it's just, it's, it's useless. I mean, you know, if you ask that question, it's all, it's loaded. If you ask the question, do you support common sense gun restrictions? It's so loaded that it's like worthless, but it, like, it's also not asking like, well, what would be the costs of those gun restrictions if they put them in play? And then the results look different often. That's true. And also the way you word the question matters. And that's something that it, that that is difficult. It's hard to design them properly. And it's something that we're always working on as pollsters to do as, as accurately and, and properly as possible. But like an example would be um, in healthcare, I've noticed that a lot of questions will ask if they favor or oppose repealing protections for people like protect, like who wants to repeal a protection, right? Let's be honest that it's a regulation that it is intended to protect a certain type of you know issue, um, but there are there are trade offs. So let's be honest about that. And by even using the word protections or talking about collective bargaining rights, you know things like that also contribute. Um, and so that's something that we are really conscientious of at Cato when we do polling that we are doing. Um, we are trying to make these questions as balanced and as fair as possible. Um, and we release all of our results. We don't hide anything that might be inconsistent with like our own views, um, because the goal is to get at what do people really think to understand where they're coming from. 
how do you go about designing questions, particularly when you're looking at trying to get a sense of people's underlying values? I'm I'm thinking of like definitional questions seem really hard. So we'll we'll talk later, but one of your findings was about the way that Americans, the favorable or unfavorable views they have towards capitalism and socialism, say, and how those have changed in the last several years. But if you ask someone, you know, what do you have a favorable view of capitalism, say, my conception of what capitalism means might be very different from what theirs means and similar with socialism, right? Like so one side might interpret socialism as like straight up state ownership and the means of production. Another side might interpret it as, well, we should just have a larger welfare state. And so they could both have the same underlying like economic views, but come to different conclusions because they're using the term differently. How do you tease out or design questions that can tease out those kinds of differences without ending up having to write term paper length questions that like define every term ahead of time <laughs> exhaustively. Right. So what a common practice in political science and in psychology is to ask people um, a series of questions that are totally unrelated to a specific policy or political issue. Um, and then examine how people answer those questions and then see how they correlate with questions they did answer about public policy or politics or who they're going to vote for. Um, so this is a very common practice that you do. Um, and we've done a lot of that in our own research. So to give you an example of how you can do that, we were really interested in looking at to what extent um, compassion you know, to help people contributes, for, contributes to support for socialism versus envy. You know, that's kind of the oldest criticism in the book, right? Um, there's that famous Winston Churchill quote that um, socialism is the gospel of envy. Um, and so what we did on our survey is that we, you know, we went into psychology and we looked for a battery of questions that psychologists use to, to measure compassion. Um, and so it has no mention about politics at all. So for instance, you would ask people a series of questions um, where you, you would ask them if they agree or disagree with a number of statements. For instance, I suffer from others' sorrows or... I feel sympathy for those who are worse off than myself. And you would agree or disagree with these statements on, say, a scale of like one to five or one to seven. And then what you do is you average all these responses together and you kind of get a sense of like how compassionate a person feels like they are. Um, so we did that on um, a recent survey that we did, uh, the Cato Welfare, uh, the Cato 2019 Welfare Work and Wealth Survey. Um, and then we also asked another set of questions to get at the competing hypothesis, right? So one hypothesis is, is that support for socialism and, and hostility to capitalism is about compassion and the love that people have for others, right? That's kind of like the social welfare state ideal. Um but then we also measured um, a different set of questions to get at, um, to kind of get at the envy side of, you know, the, the envy hypothesis. So this was, um, we asked a, a series of questions that was that were also developed in psychology by professors that, you know, they're not thinking about politics necessarily. They're, they're thinking about this from kind of a psychological perspective. So to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statements? For instance, here's one, um, very successful people need to be brought down a peg or two, even if they've done nothing wrong. 
Um, or do you agree or disagree that um, people who always do a lot better than others need to learn what it's like to fail? So this is just like, as you can see, we're not taught. There's no mention of a political candidate. There's no mention of like a specific policy like taxes or spending. Um, these are just kind of getting at the the dispositions, the, the the personality and the psychological dispositions people have. So what we do is we ask a series of questions like this, and then we um, kind of average all their responses together and get a sense of like how resentful and envious they they are. Um, and then we take the two together, compassion and envy. Which of these better predicts people's attitudes towards socialism and capitalism? And what we found is that both significantly predict um, or drive, seem to drive support for socialism. Um, now, correlation is not causation, but that's what we're saying. Predi- you know, it predicts that, that the support people have for socialism. But it's envy that really best predicts hostility people have towards capitalism. And let me tell you about why I think this matters. Um, so you've got different political candidates. And think about the language they, cho- they, they use and the issues they choose to emphasize. So some might talk about how they care about people with pre-existing conditions, vulnerable or marginalized people, and they want to help them and make sure they have access to health care and education. Okay. Now there's others that talk a lot about billionaires and millionaires and how they are to blame for so many of society's problems. Um, those, th- you know, the rhetoric between those two are very different, right? And what we found is that psychological dispositions really predict what kind of person cares about those two issues. They're not necessarily the same. Um, so more compassionate people are the ones that are, you know, care about the first set of issues, people with pre-existing conditions getting access to health care. But people that scored a little bit higher on, on envy and resentment were more concerned about wealth taxes and um, the creation of billionaires and things like that. Fascinating, not totally surprising, but it, it's kind of interesting when some of the questions you posed – is there a social desirability bias problem where you – I mean if you ask someone like do you care about you know, people who are in pain or suffering, I, I can't imagine anyone saying no to that. Well, yes, there definitely is a social desirability problem um, in terms of how people answer the questions. But what is interesting is that even despite that, we get really significant differences between groups and how they answer the question. So let's take that first one I gave you. Um, It's very successful people sometimes need to be brought down a peg or two, even if they've done nothing wrong. Like a third of strong liberals agree with that statement compared to about um, one in 10 um, conservatives. So there, there's like a, you know, they're three times as likely um, on this particular question. Um, yes. So, so my point is, is that you still get distributions between liberals and conservatives. Let me give you one on end on compassion um, between the two. So in this case, liberals score, you know, much higher on compassion on average than conservatives, I've got to get the data right in front of me. I'll just have to go off the top of my head. Um, but basically, liberals were like three to four times as likely to, to give more compassionate answers than conservatives. And so it's not that um, both sides are compassionate. It's just the extent to which people might answer a seven, str- you know, very strongly agree versus answering a six, which is, you know, agree. Mm-hmm. Now, we've seen one of the results you have is that we've seen that 
there's a shift going on post Trump about from away from capitalism towards socialism. Is that accurate? That's true. Um, among people on the political left. So Democrats have been trending since Trump was elected in favor of socialism and against capitalism. So as of 2019, 64% of Democrats had a favorable view of socialism, but only 45% has had a positive view of capitalism. So that's 64 for socialism, 45% for capitalism. But just four years ago, it was about 50-50 between the two. Um, and so we we also asked, because this was kind of a theory that I had, that, that Trump has played a role in souring Political, his political opponent's attitudes on capitalism. And it, we did find some evidence of that. 50% of Democrats say that Trump has made them like capitalism less because I think he represents to them a lot of the negative aspects and excesses that they perceive to be um, endemic to capitalism. And you know, here he is embodying all of that and is their political opponent. How much of this is branding? So if Trump calls himself a capitalist and the you know dislike for Trump runs very high and people who dislike him dislike him a lot and so don't want to basically anything that Trump likes they're not going to like that I could imagine it being the case that their underlying economic views like what kind of economic system they find favorable or not doesn't change all that much, but it's just if Trump is going to be saying, I'm a capitalist, then I don't want to say anything that's going to make me look like I'm on his side. And so I'm going to naturally develop like a disfavorable view to that term. Or if I see that the kind of people who are sharing the values that I have in terms of non-economic things are claiming a label of socialist as well, I'm going to develop more warm and fuzzies to the term, again, even if like my underlying economic views haven't changed much. Is there a way to know what's going on there? Like if it is actual shifts in views on economics or shifts on like kind of feelings towards a brand? No, that's a really good question. And sometimes it's hard to tell. Um, I think that you are right that a lot of it is kind of branding and um, what has what people, how people have come to associate the words and the labels. Like we all know um, probably by now that the word socialism just doesn't mean the same thing for young people that it, that it did among people during the cold war. Right. So older people remember that socialism is associated with the Soviet union and there are all sorts of problems that they don't want replicated here. And so they don't like that word, but younger people associate it with Scandinavia and Sweden, even though they repeatedly try to emphasize they are not socialists at all. Um, they just have larger welfare states. Um, and so really that the conversation should be about the extent to which socialistic central planning, even if it is in the case of, you know, welfare of, um, social welfare programs, you know, to what extent that actually serves um, the public or not. Um, but I think that even if underlying values may haven't or underlying uh, preferences about the economic system have not changed dramatically, I do think that it offers it it helps generate support among rank and file primary voters to elect 
um, representatives to Congress and their state legislatures that actually might have substantively different views about the economic system, if that makes sense. So even if the underlying kind of views about the economic system haven't changed for the average Democratic primary voter or the average Republican primary voter, um, they, they can still elect people who actually would move kind of where the average Democrat that sits in Congress, you know, what they actually think about the economic system. Another thing that you focused on in, in the welfare work poverty survey is young people's attitudes. Um, and in particular, we see, we see, well, one of the striking ones was, I think the actual number was uh, a third of young people believe violence against rich people may be justified, which is I guess maybe not terribly surprising given, I don't know, what's happening currently with a lot of unrest um, and their, their course have a more favorable view towards socialism. But you also have an interesting theory uh, about the nature – one other source of this, which you call – which is called locus of control theory for what may be one reason why young people have somewhat divergent attitudes about this. What does what the locus of control literature say? Well, Sure. So just for a moment, let's just let's just back up if we if if you if we can just to talk about the the puzzle here. So like the puzzle is, you know, younger Americans hold much more negative attitudes towards the rich than older Americans do. And so to put some numbers on that to just like put that into perspective. So for instance, a majority of people under 30 agree that we shouldn't let people get too rich in this country because rich people have too much political power and threaten democracy. So that was like a statement that you could agree with or disagree with. Um, a majority of young people agree with that compared to only a third of people over 65. Um, similarly, um, almost half of young people agree that they feel angry when they read or hear about very rich people compared to only 11% of people over 65. So question after question that we asked about attitudes towards the rich, um, young people were 20, 25 point, even 30 points more likely than older people to express resentment and anger. So not just like frustration, but anger with rich people. Um, now, some of this has to there's a lot of contributors to this right um people don't like that people that have more money seem to exert more influence in in society that seems unfair to many people and they want that to stop now we would have a conversation about well if you limit the power and scope of the century you know of government there's less for them to hijack in the first place right that's a whole another conversation we can have um but what i want to get at is why, you know, the words anger and resentment came out a lot in this survey um, and what's going on there. And so there's this really interesting literature on envy and resentment and and psychologists that have tried to get to the bottom of, you know, what drives some people to feel more envy than other people. OK, um, so let's talk about envy for a moment. You know, what is envy? Um, it's interesting. In the English language, we really don't have all the words that we need to, to explain envy. Um, there really are two types. And in other languages, there actually are two different words to describe um, the two different types of envy. So one you might describe as benign envy. That's when um, you compare yourself to someone else that is doing better than you in some way. And you say to yourself, oh, wow, they're doing better than me. You know, I want to strive to be better to be better too, okay? Um, 
The other kind of envy is called um, malicious envy. And this is when you observe a peer or someone else, you know, doing better than you in some way. Maybe they got a better grade or they made more money or got like a promotion or, you know, even if if you're doing a similar type of job, they seem to do something well at work. The malicious form of envy wants to bring the other person down rather than lift yourself up. Okay, and so it's fascinating that other languages actually have two different words to describe these things. Um, and so what I was really interested in is the role of malicious envy. You know, what's going on there and why do some people feel more malicious envy than others? Um, why do some people want to tear each other down? Um, and so that brings us to the locus of control literature. There's some evidence that um, some of that feeling of malicious envy is driven by people's lack of feeling personal agency. And that's really what the locus of control is about. It's a it's a construct identified in psychology totally separate from politics. That's really key to remember here. This is developed by psychologists, you know, not related to voting or politics. And what they found is that if you looked even at children, Children seem to have different ways of explaining the events in their lives. Um, for instance, imagine you have you know you have a kid and they got a bad grade on a test. They're in high school, and you say, "Why did you get that? You know, why did you get the bad grade?" One set of answers they could give would be, "Oh, well, the teacher didn't teach very well. The class was noisy. You didn't provide me a proper study space at home." Um, you know, all these things that are external to the individual's choices. Okay. Um, alternatively, imagine another kid that got a bad grade on a test and you say, Hey, why'd you get the bad grade on the test? And they say, well, honestly, I didn't pay attention very well in class, <laughs> or I stayed out too much too late the night before, um, with friends, or I actually didn't do the reading. Like, you know, I was, that, that was assigned. Okay, so the latter are all things that are within the control of the individual. It's something that they have a little bit more control over than these external forces. And what psychologists have found is that people who emphasize what is within their personal control, that's called the internal locus of control versus external locus of control. People that have an internal locus of control have all of these um, more positive outcomes. So they found that measuring this in, in children, um, the kids that tended to emphasize the things that were within their control um, tended to get better grades. They um, made more money in the jobs that they got when they got older they reported higher life satisfaction and greater happiness in the jobs that they had. They were willing to change jobs if they were unhappy in their current situation. Um, it um, correlates with less um, less likely to bully other kids and get involved in fights among high school boys. I mean, and, and lots of healthcare studies use this. So it also correlates with positive, more positive healthcare outcomes. So there definitely seems to be something here about the lo the internal locus of control and a belief that you are in the driver's seat of your life. Now that does not mean in any way that external forces don't shape you. Um, the question is, is to what extent do you emphasize one or the other? And so what it seems like is that those who are emphasizing, you know, people who feel a lot of malicious envy are, they tend to have more an external locus of control. They feel like these external forces are shaping their lives. And what we found is that younger people are far more likely to feel um, an external locus of control 
than older people. And this is something documented by a social scientist named Jean um, Twenge, where she's been going over um, generations of young cohorts since the 70s. So this is not the same people over time. This is who are the young people at any given snapshot in time since the 70s. And she's been finding that more and more young people um, have an external locus of control than previous generations. And so that seems to be contributing a lot to what we're seeing today, these negative attitudes towards wealth. Um, and I think explains a lot of other political phenomenon that we're, that we're witnessing as well. That's fascinating. And I have some immediate questions related to this. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to just put out a couple uh, and see. Uh, the first is, so if, if youth cohorts over time are showing an increase in external locus of control, are, do they still show a decrease in that belief as they age? Because you could, I, I mean, it make, if you just asked me, like, do young people or older people feel like they're more in control of their own agency, it would make sense for older people to feel they're in control than younger people because younger people are subject to their parents, they're subject to their teachers, they don't have jobs yet, they're not independent, and so on. So they are, you know, they have less control over their lives. That makes perfect sense. But if, and and I could also imagine if it's increasing over time, that that could be potentially driven by kind of the 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 growing length of adolescence in American culture, that, that young people are dependent upon their parents and so on for a longer period of time. And so an older, a young person looks like a young person instead of an old person in terms of like how their life is going to a later age than they used to just because of cultural shifts. Um, and then the other, the other like minor question is when we're talking about resentment or um, this malicious envy towards wealthy people, do we distinguish kinds of wealthy people? Because it seems like young people, you know, Dwayne Johnson makes a ton of money and Taylor Swift makes a ton of money, but I don't tend to see younger people like maliciously resentful of their money. They're resentful of like certain kinds of businesses or certain kinds of people who they might view as like have, you know, this is ill-gotten gains or corrupt or so on. So do we do we have more granular data on that? Yeah, these are these are great questions. Um, my immediate just let me think about the most the the last question you ask. We actually did a survey where we asked people um, how much money they thought um, corporate CEOs should make, and then also NBA basketball players and um, NFL football players. And we actually found that that very strong majorities of people thought that NBA and NFL football players made way too much money as well. Um, so it wasn't just CEOs, but you're absolutely right that when it comes to kind of the who who's the the poster child for the you know the the, the greedy the greedy vulture capitalist, it, it's not like Taylor Swift that people put up there, right? They're thinking about kind of a faceless CEO for some faceless corporation that goes kind of identified unidentified, right? So yeah, there's there's definitely something something to that um, where they can see the value that Taylor Swift produces for them, whereas they don't know exactly how the CEO of, um, you know, a major company provides value to them. And they also don't, maybe they don't realize 
how that CEO is hard to replace, you know, that their jobs are actually hard. I think a lot of people recognize that Taylor Swift has a very unique talent to write and sing music and that most of us realize we could not do that. (laughs) But maybe it's not clear that people realize that the CEO of Black & Decker actually has a pretty hard job um, and not just anyone could do it well. And that's why CEOs get pushed out all the time. Um, To your first question about cohort effects versus life phase effects. Um, I think you're absolutely right that, um, yeah, like younger people are subject to parents and teachers. They don't have jobs yet. They don't have control of much of their lives. Um, And that if you increase the number of years in which kids are living at home um, or increasing that phase of adolescence, that that would increase the percentage of people who have that more external locus of control. I think that that absolutely could be playing a role. Um, I, I, you know, honestly, there hasn't been a lot of research that has tried to explain the why, um, why it's increasing. Um, I think that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, does kind of touch on this um, in that they document a, a kind of a change or a shift in parenting styles to more hovering, um, where kids are taught that they need a third party um, authority to to mediate conflict between between young people, um, and so they advocate for more like fr- you know freer range parenting. Let let your kids kind of work out their conflicts amongst themselves without having the teacher come in and solve it for them. Um, So there might be something to that. Um, But I actually think about my own experience. I actually had kind of a flashback to when I was graduating from college. And I'm a a little embarrassed to say how I felt. Um, I remember sitting there in the auditorium during graduation and each of the speakers that were not students was always like, Princeton alumnus is going to speak about that, you know, this person went to Yale, this person went to Harvard, and then they started this company. And they were all these just like famous people that had gone to Ivy League schools, and they were all there to like, give us advice for the future. And I remember being a little bit annoyed and resentful um, at the time. And I'm embarrassed to say this, actually. Um, But I think the reason why is I felt like I had no control over that. I felt like, how could I like I felt like I was implicitly being asked to be successful like them. And I thought, well, how am I supposed to do that? Um, and so I think to your point, Aaron, that's what a lot of young people feel. Um, but I think what a lot of people discover is that once they get out there and start making a lot of their own choices, um, that they find, um, they find a little bit greater sense of agency. Um, and I think that as people get older, they do feel um, that internal locus of control does seem to increase. It's interesting because this confirms some classic distinctions between conservatives and liberals, uh, people on the left, uh, that per- the personal responsibility distinction uh, is being a huge component of this. And in my own thinking for a while, I've kind of thought that this sort of subplot of the last 200 years of political thought has kind of been how much of people's – your conditions or given people's conditions of poverty or different status, criminal status, how much of it is their fault versus how much of it is due to external factors. Like is crime caused by people – bad people choosing to commit crime or is it caused by economic circumstances? And that has underlined a bunch of our debates over – politics for 200 years, I would say, if not if not longer. Um, you also talk about 
interesting, like the meaning in your life. That's one poll part that you get. Conservatives find more meaning in their lives than liberals, which doesn't shock me, I guess, given like kind of grievance centered, some people who are very grievance centered. Uh, do you have any interpretation on, on how that kind of fits into the, the rubric you've explained? Right. Um, yes. So we actually asked some of these questions about the locus of control on our survey. Um, and again, keep in mind that these are not questions that ask about politics or who you voted for or what you think about taxes or immigration. These are totally separate. So for instance, this question, um, excuse me, it's a statement you can agree or disagree. Um, my uh, So here's the statement. My life is determined by my own actions. Um, 52% of strong conservatives strongly agree with that statement compared to a third of very liberal people. Um, and, and almost actually each of the questions that we asked, conservatives are more likely to take the internal locus of control position um, versus liberals. And that seems to correlate really strongly with finding meaning and purpose in people's lives. And you're right, Trevor, it's, it's such a hard thing because I think a lot of liberals look at this and they say, well, there are people suffering all over the world for things that they had no control over. You don't always determine your life. Um, there are all sorts of external forces that that shape the decisions in which you make your own choices. And so I feel like both sides are, are right in their own way, right? External forces obviously, absolutely shape all of us. And they can kind of put us on a path um, in one direction or another. But I think a lot of people also believe that free will and agency also matter. And some might be interested in engaging in the exercise of, well, which one matters more, um, you know, for public policy? Like, do we need to know which one matters more in each given situation? Well, I don't know. But I do think that there is an argument to be made for emphasizing why, no, kind of regardless of what the facts are, that if we as individuals choose to focus on the, you know, trying to have an internal locus of control, and focus on personal agency ourselves, we might be happier as individuals. So that's kind of separate from the public policy conversation about how we want to reform structures so that people can thrive better, right? Um, and so in the survey, we asked people about um, if they felt like they had purpose and meaning in their life. And then what we did is we looked through, okay, who are the people who agreed with this, you know, strongly agree that their life has purpose and meaning? And um, you know, what, what, what's their profile? And so we found some really interesting correlations. So I'm going to share those with you now. So who, who finds most meaning and purpose in their life? So people who had a strong belief in personal agency were like 40 points more likely than those who had a, you know, low belief people who, who kind of believe in external locus of control. So people of an internal locus of control are way more likely to feel like their life has meaning and purpose. Um, people who emphasize personal responsibility. So these are questions about, um, you know, should, pe- should you reap what you sow? Those kinds of questions. Um, people who scored high on compassion. You know, I've already read you some of those questions. People who scored low on envy. Um, and I read you some of those questions as well. And so it kind of creates this profile. Okay, so who is the person psychologically in America 
that has the most meaning and purpose in their life, which is separate than like happiness, right? That can be like you ate some chocolate chip cookies. That was fun. Um, But what provides that deep, lasting meaning in your life? And it seems like people who take on and believe in taking on as much responsibility as they can, people who focus on the things that they can control versus the things that they can't, um, people who try to be compassionate and avoid feeling resentment and envy towards others is kind of perhaps a recipe for finding that meaning and purpose in your life. How does Trumpism fit into this? And I'm thinking particularly of the kind of Trumpism that seems to be motivated by white grievance politics, which was you know what he ran on and what it looks like his campaign this time around is going to largely focus on because you talk about like the what we find is that young people have this external locus of control and older people have or young yeah young people have the external older people have the internal that conservatives seem to have potentially more meaning in their lives or are are more disposed to think that we like have personal responsibility for our lives um, and and have less resentment, but all of those things seem to describe a lot of white grievance politics. That that white grievance politics is kind of is is blaming manipulators and other people. It's it's picking enemies. It's saying that you know your position in life is because of all these external forces. And even I'm the you know like the national conservative movement has been making the case that there's been one of the things that drives white grievance politics is a hollowing out specifically of meaning because we've abandoned, say, religious institutions or don't have the same jobs that existed before or whatever. And so it just, as you were describing the characteristics of the youth and the far left, a lot of times it felt like you were describing the white grievance politics motivated Trump voters. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think if you listen to, if you listen closely to a lot of the rhetoric that Donald Trump uses, especially at the beginning, you know, especially back in like 2015 when he first launched his campaign and was kind of setting the groundwork for like, what is he all about? And what do people, you know, people who wanted to vote for him, what drew them to him? Um, he has a rhetoric of externalizing where the the source of the problem um, lies outside of the individual immigrants coming into the country, um, competition with China, globalization and trade, all of these things are external to the individual. Um, and I think that that's why Trump, um, attracted a different kind of Republican or even not even Republican voter early on. And we have data on this, um, so Republican politics has been characterized by a number of different social movements that have galvanized kind of different segments of the political right. So there was the religious right, um, there was the the Tea Party movement, and then comes along Trump. And so a lot of people probably assume they're all the same. Well, um, I wrote my dissertation on the Tea Party and have spent a lot of time studying these segments because I just think coalitional politics are so interesting. Um, and they exist on the left and the right. Um, and what's interesting about Trump is that he attracted um, a different kind of kind of conservative person. And a lot of them actually identify as moderates. They were like independent moderates that weren't really paying, a, paying attention to politics, and he activated them. Um, 
whereas the you know the the, the Christian conservatives and the Tea Partiers actually gravitated to other candidates early on, like Trump or sorry, not Trump, like Cruz and Rubio were the Tea Party favorites, and then um, religious conservatives kind of had some overlap there too. And so his message really gravitated with a new set, set of voters at the beginning. And then he kind of brought them all under his wing, um, which because partisan partisanship does that. Um, but I think that you're absolutely right that that his message is externalizing. And what I noticed is that when when Bernie Sanders was running in 2016 against Hillary and then Trump's running in the primaries, I thought, wow, their, their rhetoric is so similar. <laughs> They're all pointing to an external force and saying, you can blame them for your problems and you should elect me to come in and fix it for you. Um, and it's concerning that it does seem that politics incentivizes this kind of behavior because what kind of political leader doesn't jump at the opportunity, it seems, to tell people that they can blame somebody else and they should elect them to solve their problems. And that's probably what's going to happen this November. Yeah, it is very concerning. I'm thinking fairly pessimistically now about, you know, the state, I mean, we're in a pandemic with a lot of unrest and the state of American politics going forward, where this narrative is just sort of bounced back and forth by people, either the, the standards and his, his heirs and then Trump and his heirs. Uh, and, it is somewhat interesting for millennials to kind of go back to your or or zillennials and and younger people to go back to your point about I don't even know what they're called anymore, but about younger people that you do have a situation like what the libertarians would say about this in many many of these situations is that due to government involvement, uh, three really important things: education, healthcare, and housing, uh, have become extremely inaccessible compared to what it was for for our parents, um, and then you get the lack of locus of control feeling about those things and then pushing for externalizing. And it, it kind of doesn't look rosy to me. I don't know if it looks rosy to you going forward. If there's like something in the data that you say, oh, there's going to be, you know, some real libertarian or, or individual responsibility coming up here when there are a lot of genuine grievances that I right. think millennials have, right? Right. I, I completely agree. And so that's what I was saying. I was trying to emphasize, and I hope that I communicated it the way I intended, is that absolutely there are external forces that you don't have any control over that affect your life and that certain forces disproportionately affect some people more than others. And that's not fair. And from a public policy standpoint, we want to redress that, right? We want to improve access to high quality education for all students, for all kids. We want to improve access to good quality housing, um, expand access to healthcare, all those things. And that's from a public policy perspective we want to do. There seems to be evidence that there is racial bias in the criminal justice system. And it is absolutely valid to acknowledge that and saying that police, racial bias in policing and criminal justice is wrong and we must stop that. Um, and so I think that sometimes people misunderstand this, this discussion by saying that if we want to emphasize the internal locus of control for individual, like personal meaning and happiness, that that means we should just ignore the injustices all around us. And that's false. We don't want to do that. Um, but I do think that there's a fine line between, you know, to what extent do we individually emphasize one or over the other in our own personal life versus what do we seek to improve kind of as a society as a, a society going forward yeah i think it's difficult because i mean especially now you brought in the policing fact which we can touch on a bit here which you've also done surveys on but it's difficult with 
figuring out, I mean, as you said, it's very important that you don't minimize, and, and it's not even a rhetorical strategy. These these impediments to African Americans are not minimal in any way, uh, but it's hard to kind of figure out how you talk about this without sounding like you're blaming everyone for not getting ahead because they didn't have enough personal responsibility. Right. That absolutely has to be that has to be part of the conversation. And I feel like some people have talked about disentangling fault from responsibility. And I think that there might be something useful here, right? Because I think we spend a lot of time saying, well, whose fault is it that this problem exists? Okay, so there's some value in trying to figure that out, right? Because we obviously think if we could figure out whose fault it is, we could stop the problem. Um, But sometimes I think that it's also useful to disentangle that and say, okay, so the problem exists. We should try to fix that. Let's, you know, set that aside for a moment and think about how do we, how can we fix the problem? And a lot of times focusing on, you know, how we can use our own agency to make things better um, is also an important approach. And that we can only do that if we disentangle fault from responsibility. Um, Even though both conversations need to happen, sometimes we get bogged down in the whose fault is it so much that we don't actually try to solve the problem as individuals using our own agency. Meaning has played a large role in a lot of this conversation and the the problem of people without this strong sense of meaning then have these other beliefs and the people with the strong sense of meaning seem to do better. And and one of one of my worries is that we increasingly see people trying to find meaning in politics. And that, that the more you invest your meaning in politics, the the more corrosive politics is going to become because you're you're defining yourself through political views and defining others through theirs. Um, and I'm is there how do we start to reestablish meaning for people who have lost it, particularly when it seems like we're you know we're a secularizing society, and for a lot of Americans, religion was a source of meaning. And particularly young people are much more secular than prior generations. And that doesn't seem like that's necessarily going to come back. So is there stuff in the data about how people who have meaning find it in ways that we could we could learn from and try to instill more of it? Right. <laughs> just, so the- Aaron, that question was was great. I was just like I was thinking, tell us how to save America, Emily. <laughs> Please yeah, it's do. Such, it's it's so hard. It's something I think we all think about. Um who well we think about how can how can we improve happiness and meaning in our own lives and those around us, um, and, and it's hard because it does seem like some of the ways that people did that in the past are um, trending and they're declining. So, for instance, religiosity, religion has played a major role in the past. But to your point of like secularization, you know, so what about people that aren't religious? There needs to be a way for people to find meaning and purpose in their life, too. Um, And it seems like from the data that we had, um, it seems like trying to take on as much responsibility as you can um, may be may offer kind of the secret ingredient to unlocking that for people. And I think it's really important to distinguish between happiness and meaning because those are not always the same thing. I mean, especially if you have, if a person has clinical depression where they actually have a hormonal imbalance where it's hard for them to feel happiness, you know, that's something that an individual can't really control. But meaning is separate. Um, and meaning, I think, 
can be can be found by trying to take on as much responsibility as we can and trying to use our agency as much as we can. And so an example of this, I thought, like with what's happening right now with the protests over racial bias and policing, I've noticed um, I noticed a lot of conservatives saying, well, it's not the police's fault. It's not, you know, they're kind of pointing fingers at everybody else um, in some cases. And then I just kind of noticed a lot of people's finger pointing at other people and not focusing on themselves. Now, some some did, obviously. But I kind of thought, like, the secret ingredient should be whenever you're seeking to solve a problem, let's start with the assumption of here's what I can do to make the problem better <laughs> rather than if you're ever starting the sentence with, well, I would try to help, but... Um, I, nothing that I do matters until someone else changes. It's just not going to be effective. Um, so however we can within our own domain, domain, use our own personal agency to try to make things better, I think is the best first step. And anyone that is suggesting otherwise, I would be cautious (laughs) about their approach. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.